We are looking at the uh, first chapter of John. It's his prologue. We're dropping into the middle of that prologue. However, I want to read uh, from verse 1 all the way to verse 13, just because it frames uh, what we're going to be looking at in a better uh, context. Hear now the word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Pray together. Father, we thank you. Whenever we look and hear your voice and hear your words, we, in some ways, are transported to a new realm. We thank you that your words have life and they give it to us as a gift. We pray, Father, that you would help us see you high and lifted up this morning that you would enlarge our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are looking, as I said this morning, at a section of the prologue of John's Gospel. Many commentators believe that John is con- he's consciously Uh, supplementing the synoptic tradition. That is, the books of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, their Gospels, tell the story of Jesus in various ways, but a lot of their material is uh, the same. John comes along and looks at things in a different way. John wants to add some points of teaching, and we need to take a close look at this if we think about the life of Jesus Christ. One of which, one of those teachings is, is that the synoptics tended to emphasize the humanity of Christ. And they certainly were, of course, aware of his deity. We don't have any problem proving the deity from uh, the Gospels. But the basic uh, orientation and their emphasis was on the true, perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. 
John comes along and gives us a new emphasis in another direction. John, of course, was perfectly aware of the humanity of Christ, and that, of course, is clear enough. But again and again, uh, he is driving home to us that this is God among us. The greatest event in the, all of human history, we must see it in those terms. He wants us to fall on our knees just as Thomas did and cry out, my Lord and my God. That is deity. And he is worthy, of course, of our worship. To worship anything less than deity is idolatry. And to worship anything other than Christ is idolatry. John wants to paint us into a corner. If you are a Christian, you worship Christ as God, not a God, not some kind of exalted human or some special person or some good teacher. No, you worship him as the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity. And uh, this is what I hope uh, for all of you this morning, that uh, as you look at what John is teaching here, this will be your heart's desire as well to see him this way. John says towards the end of his gospel, these things were written so you may believe and believing have life in his name. Okay, we're going to take a look now starting at verse 6. It says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We understand uh, John, the Baptist, to be in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. By Jesus' own witness, uh, he calls John the greatest of the prophets, greater than Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He comes and has a message of preparation He is the one who knows that he is right on the verge of something to start, something big, some colossal new day. Some great thing is about to happen. Even John the Baptist probably doesn't appreciate exactly what that is going to look like. He knows that he must call attention to the Holy One who who would come and that he must decrease And that Christ must increase. But Jesus doesn't give any higher praise to any man, any man born of among women, than he does uh, here to John the Baptist. But you will notice that Jesus also says this. He who is least in the kingdom that I am establishing here is greater than John. Not necessarily greater in character or in talent. Not anything like that, but greater in status. Because to be a citizen of the kingdom that Christ is establishing is to be a citizen of something new. Something new in Christ. In Christ, we now have our, a prophet, priest, and a king all wrapped up in one person. We are now a citizen of that kingdom. 
John came to bear witness to this. He starts by speaking of the light. He came to give testimony first to this lower, lowercase light. We read this in the way John says it in uh, referring to the light that is in every human being. Because we have something in us that makes us distinctively human, do we not? There is something in us, a sort of gnawing resignation that we have this kind of capacity, the kind of self-consciousness, a God consciousness. And we know there is no other creature on the planet that has that. And we are distinguished. We share a lot of common, of course, with the other creatures of this world, but we have something very unique It is this that John is now calling the light. It is a part of the, really a part of the agony of being human. Bless Pascal, the famous uh, mathematician, said this about man. We have the body of a beast, but the mind of an angel. Of course, the point he was making was that no matter what your situation is in life, you can immediately think of a way in which it could be better. Is it amazing that we are always in this, this sort of quandary of bigger thoughts, and yet we feel the limitations of our existence? The New Testament is aware of that, and it plays on it rather dramatically. Paul does this in the second chapter of Romans, When he speaks of, therefore you are without excuse, O man, whoever you are, and that when you judge another, you condemn yourself. Because you judge, you do the same things. That's what Paul is saying here. We read that sort of casually, and we think that perhaps Paul is just uh, giving a little criticism about human behavior. No, it's more than that. You know, uh, you know, it's not just that you shouldn't be judgmental. Paul has something, of course, very much larger in mind because remember, he says that you are without excuse. Probably Paul had in mind the excuse of ignorance because when you judge, you prove that you know some standard by which you are passing judgment. You cannot deny that you know the standard when you go around constantly using that standard to evaluate people based on that standard. And yet, you don't live by the standard yourself. Our own words, you know, condemn us. Isn't this part of the misery of what it means to be human? When I am accused of something, I want to paint myself in the best possible light that I can, and I can get quite creative uh, doing that. Um, Ask my wife. (laughs) And yet, often, I lack sympathy for those people I don't like. We are, you know, we are busy, busy, busy people looking at one another. Look at the the way social media has been going is just horrifying. What is this in us? 
What is this kind of neurosis, this kind of fixation on morality that we have of our existence? John says, it is the light that is within us. It is the light that is in us and the world that we carry around with us, and it is inescapable. People hate this because they know their deeds are evil. Their conscience is condemning them. They know that they are putting themselves, uh, when they sin, out of whack with the world, the universe. They push God away. They suppress the truth. They work very hard to deny the fundamental reality of what we are as human beings. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's a fractured light, but a light nonetheless. But still enough of it there. We know that before him we carry this condemnation. And John the Baptist came uh, to bear witness to the light that is in us. Now that may sound like kind of an odd thing uh, to say, but... um, It has been a thing that has been used powerfully, I I believe, by evangelists in uh, times past in history to make their preaching very powerful. The classical way we refer to this is the uh, sort of conviction of the spirit. It actually has taken on many names, but and we, we know that the chief work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. Look at the great moments of uh, the powerful, sweeping moments of evangelism where literally thousands of people were brought into the Christian movement by some great preacher. I love revival history. Uh, I hope you do too. But I'm always just captivated by the, the way in which people were overwhelmed by the conviction of their sins to the point of crying and weeping for hours. I think that's what John is doing here, a message that would reduce people to a sense of their utter brokenness before God. He is preaching a message of repentance. He was driving home to them the light in them that condemns them. It was that that led them to a washing rite and to be baptized by him. To prepare them for the one who would come to them and baptize them with fire. They wanted to be prepared for that one. The prophets of old did this, but John kind of changes the game. There is something else here uh, that John does. When the religious leaders came out to see John the Baptist, they didn't go out there because they wanted to be baptized. No, John knew what was in their hearts. And he says to them that God could raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. Or worse yet, from could bring salvation to the Gentiles. He didn't say that, but that would be even more offensive to them, I think. 
To be a seed of Abraham was about, of course, a natural birth. And John is talking about your rebirth. Those following John the Baptist would confess their sins out loud, repenting of them and trying to prepare themselves for the new one who would come. John says <coughs> that uh, John the Baptist, John says of John the Baptist that he was not the light, but came to bear witness to the pure light. Not the fractured life that is in all men, but the true light, the light of the Logos that we read about in the first few verses of John, which gives light to every human being. It is that light of the Logos that is now coming into the world, that light which has been given light to every human being without, uh, throughout human history. John is saying that Jesus has written his name in every human heart. Even if you have never heard of Jesus, you have his name written in your heart. It's written, made by Jesus. And that little inscription is in your heart is either to be your source of your greatest joy or the source of your greatest misery. You're never going to have joy unless you get right with the one who has written his name on your heart. You're always going to have misery. And those who don't embrace Christ will find every kind of substitute to put where Christ is supposed to be and try to get the joy from that thing. There are actually, I think John Calvin said that that our hearts are an idol factory, you know. There's like 10,000 idols that we could uh, make in our hearts. That people will try to uh, squeeze something into that place that Christ is, and, uh, where he has signed his name. If there is anything in that spot except Christ, there will, as I said, be misery. An agonizing, unfulfilled desire for something and you just haven't quite figured it out. This great shining light was now coming into the world and people either loved him or they crucified him. He didn't have, uh, he didn't leave sort of anybody in a sort of neutral ground, did he? He was already in the world, but the world didn't know him. He already created the world And so it is a Christocentric world. You are surrounded by Jesus all the time. He speaks to us every day through the things that are made. But the world didn't know him. He came to his own people and they did not accept him. The impact of the life of Jesus, of course, in human history is... uh, it's great, you know, There's, it's huge. Changed the course of history. You know. It's undeniable. However, he was largely rejected by his counterparts, his contemporaries. Pontius Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the religious leaders handed him over to be crucified 
when they cried out, we have no king but Caesar, they shouted. You'll notice in this text, there's a bit of a shift now uh, where John says that there are some who did receive him. And John anticipates our questions of why. Why did a few people respond to Jesus in a different way? Were they the smartest people in the world? Why was it that a relatively few, what Paul calls a remnant, who became devoted to the same Jesus, when the bulk of the people wanted to eliminate him from the face of the word, from human experience? John gives us the answer, of course, uh, about the ones who received Jesus. Gives this astonishing status in being called the children of God, these ones that received Christ. We inherit, because of our faith, a kind of cosmic royalty. The ones who believe, but we want to ask How come they figured it out? He was, uh, (coughs) how was it that they were the ones, the relatively few? And John, as I said, gives us the answer. We might, you know, we may not like the answer. Some people turn away from it. And they say, well, it can't be that. John couldn't make it really any clearer for us, though. My task this morning is not to spin it, but to give it to you straight and just tell you what it says. It says that they were born. It doesn't mean born physically. That has already happened, of course. They were, to use Jesus' words, when he, remember when he was speaking with Nicodemus, they were reborn, are born from above. It was a supernatural birth a different kind of birth. That's the, uh, that's the people we are speaking of here. He then rules out all the normal sort of explanations for why they were born supernaturally. John says, not because of race, not because of blood, not because of skin color. It wasn't because they had this immense ability to uh, our power of the will to stay focused John says sorry no not that you will remember when uh, Jesus came to Peter one day and they had been out among the people and he says to them well who are the people who are they saying that I am and Peter says well you know some are saying this some are saying that And then he looks right at Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus didn't say to him, geez, Peter, I'm so glad you figured that out. You know, how did you do that? No, he says you were, it wasn't because of man or your will or whatever it says you were born from above god made you alive to the truth you were born from above how do we explain then the those people who are born for the from above 
in ways that we can kind of understand. I will tell you it's not necessarily... uh, I've been in evangelical circles for a long time. And I encounter people all the time who tell me that, well, no, you you have to have faith so you can be born again. And and I say, "Where, where does it say that? You know, I've never read that. It says you have to be born again or born from above or you're never going to see the truth. Paul says you're dead in your trespasses, sin. You'll not be made alive without a supernatural work of God. In Reformed theology, we, we say it this way, that regeneration proceeds faith. I believe that 100%. It's a great, the formulations, our historic creeds and formulations are, I think, very helpful in that respect. Sometimes it boils down to a sort of debate about the will, you know. Um, And this can be a kind of complicated, I find myself not, I, I understand it, but explaining it to others sometimes is hard. I tell them that your will, you're free. <laughs> your will is free to make choices. You make choices every day. I understand that. But your will is also in bondage. It's in slavery. It follows the things that you love, the things that you desire. Your heart is oriented away from God. Therefore, it's not free. That's what we call the bondage of the will or the slavery of the will. To be free from that, you must be regenerate and then you are truly free you're not under bondage and the choices that you make spring from a heart that has been changed and now you have a new desire i want to conclude by uh, giving you these three points i think that flow out of uh, the gospel of john here in this prologue that i have found to be very helpful in my life because I believe they are imminently true. And the first one is, the good news of the gospel demands a sober apprehension of the bad news of our condition apart from Christ. I know I was saved when I was uh, in college, and um, I know that a true encounter with the gospel usually takes place in a state of misery. There's some kind of turmoil that's going on in your heart that the Holy Spirit uses to open you up to the truth. The second thing is that our growth in holiness will always be accompanied by a parallel conviction that the one's own sins run deeper than they ever imagined. Paul in his the latter part of his ministry he's writing to timothy and he tells timothy that i am the chief of sinners the great apostle paul yeah i know how he started out but he did great things and he still considered himself a chief sinner the third thing is that an increasing revelation of one's own corruption will lead to an even more astonishment at the love of and grace of God in Christ. We will have a much higher, 
in greater appreciation for God's work in our hearts when we understand the other side of the coin. I think this is why in Calvin's institute, you know, he, he began his institutes with a look at man. He said, you can't understand the nature of man unless you understand the nature of God. You can't understand the nature of God in the work of redemption unless you understand the nature of man. And so I think that is true. All of this is drawn, I think, from John uh, here. However, these things are widely expanded on, on in other parts of the Bible. Um, and so um, I hope you will look into those matters. Um, I think your heart will be benefited by it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the gospel. Thank you for John in writing this gospel. Thank you for John the Baptist in preparing the way for our Lord. Help us to enter in to these things, these uh, in some ways very invisible, eternal things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.